Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 233. Couldn't wait one more day to release this very special episode. My guest on this episode is David Schefter. Shefty has been a staff writer for the USGA for over 20 years now. He's seen a few things, and he has the stories to prove it. He has the uncanny ability to recall the date, location, winner, runner-up, or just about any other detail about just about every significant amateur championship in the last 20 years, and maybe more. If you've been listening and following the back of the range for quite some time, you'll remember that I was very fortunate to have been invited by the USGA to be a content contributor at the US Amateur at Bandon Dunes in 2020. We were smack dab in the middle of COVID. Everyone had to test multiple times before and during the championship. But when I finally got out there to Bandon Dunes, I got to spend the week with a handful of USGA communication staff members that were on site. And one of them was Shefty. It was a fun and memorable week. Definitely started me and the back of the range off in a whole new direction. That's kind of what jump-started the ability for me to travel as much as I am and go to as many of these championships. So have to thank the USGA and Shefty for making that week so memorable. Shefty is like a walking, talking golf trivia game that runs exclusively on Cokes, Sour Patch Kids, and Peanut M&M's. That reminds me, I think I owe him a bag or two. Anyways, Shefty is, uh, he's a beauty. I think that's the best way to put it. And if you find yourself playing in a USGA championship next year or just attending one, keep your eyes open for David Schefter. Because if you want to hear a good story or two, he's got plenty of them. And it, it doesn't take too much arm twisting to get him to share one. As always, make sure you're following along on social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. Let's get right to it. Mr. Schefter, you're at the back of the range, sir. How are you? I'm great. Uh, probably a little, you're probably a little better than me considering you're in Florida and it's a lot warmer. It's, it actually snowed here today. Life's about choices, Shefty. You gotta, I mean, it's, I you know. gotta make your pick. We're, I mean, it, down here in South Florida, you know, roughing it through about, you know, 70 degree weather and not a cloud in the sky. Where, where are you, Hale? Where are you at right now? Where are you roughing it? Uh, I live in a town called Stewartsville, New Jersey. It's about 30 minutes or so west of Golf House, right on the Pennsylvania border. So I'm not too far from, uh, the Lehigh Valley, like Lafayette, Lehigh, uh, the college is there, and, and the Saucon Valley, which a lot of people know is one of the great venues in the Northeast, and it will host the Cedar Open next year, about 20 minutes from there. So it's a nice little community, bedroom community. There you go. So so you mentioned Golf House, obviously, you know, senior staff writer for the United States Golf Association. So just how close are you to some of the, 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 the artifacts that the USGA has in their museum? I mean, like, how close from – from your office or how close from your house are you to like a u.s open trophy are there just trophies lying around the office just that anyone i mean how's this work they're not lying around the office oh, okay. they're all they're they're, not. They're, we do have uh, a little case in the foyer of the administration building okay it showcases i believe it's the u.s up women's open and u.s amateur trophies but all the trophies the originals are actually in the museum right next door it's just a, maybe a two-minute walk <clears throat> excuse me from the administration administration building 
and we haven't been this Hall of Champions. And I don't know if you've ever been to the USGA, but not yet. It's it, there's a rotunda, and in the middle we have all the replica trophies of all the championships, and then on the outside on the peripheral we have panels for each year going from 1895 to the present. Each year is represented, and then we have the names of every champion, and then the, what what championship they won, and where they won it. So wow. we get a lot of past champions that come into the come to the USJ for the first time and they walk into the museum and they and they see their plaque and they are overwhelmed with emotion. It just brings back a lot of great memories for them. And then they see the trophies and they see their name on the trophies and you see all the other names on the trophies. And it's a really cool place and uh, every champion who comes in is just awed by this the, by this room. And then obviously the museum itself showcases the history of golf starting with. Francis, we met win in the nineteen thirteen U.S. Open up to the present. That has to be a pretty incredible place to work. Not just the fact that you're working for the USGA, but you know, it's one thing to you know be in an office setting, but to have champions come by and also you can just pop out and think to yourself, man, I I I can't remember who won the nineteen seventy five U.S. Amateur. I guess I could look it up, but instead of doing that, why don't I just walk over and just take a look for myself? Right. Yeah, I believe that would be Fred Ridley. I knew you were. Uh, All right, so we're going to get this out of the way. But, uh, yeah, but yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's a living, breathing piece of history. And uh, every time I go over there, if we, we get a champion that comes by, especially one that, I, that I've known or maybe even covered, it's just great to, to talk with them and, and reminisce about the championship they won and go over some of the stories. And then they look around and they're just uh, – sometimes they bring their wives – their kids and they see and they see this and they can explain to them you know what they did and uh and even just walk, not even so much the wall of the hall of champions area but the actual museum itself sure there's some incredible artifacts in there that each of some of the champions every champion donates something and uh so we've got medals we've got shoes we've got visors we got we got the arnold palmer room which has stuff from arnie we have the jack nicholas room the mickey wright room so there's so many different parts and components to the museum that people can see and, and learn about, about the history of the game. I will preface this episode for the listeners to just don't be surprised if throughout this episode, Shefty rattles off trivia of like what just happened right there. When I just randomly said 1975 USAM, you immediately knew it was Fred Ridley, which you are correct. So don't be surprised if you hear more of this throughout the episode and think to yourself, is this Rain Man? And it's not. It's just Shefty because Shefty just has this stored away in his brain. And, um, I mean, it just absolutely soaks up in your brain that this this knowledge of champions and runner-ups and, and, and the courses where the championships were held. I mean, is this – now, you're University of Arizona graduate. I'm not sure if that school helped you become this way. But, <laughs> but like, how did – you know, how did you first start getting this, I guess – thirst for sports trivia like when did this start for you actually it's it's just a photographic memory actually i'll, I'll go and get through the story back when i was seven years old my dad was a professor so professors at the university could take a sabbatical and go where, where they wanted to go for a year and so back in 1972 my dad decided we were going to go live in switzerland for a year so my brother who's two years younger than me my mom and my dad we, we spent a year in uh, in zurich and zurich has this wonderful tram system i believe there's 15 different routes and for some reason or another i memorized every tram stop in the city <laughs> every line and <laughs> believe it or not and i would actually tell my mom where to get off the tram when we used to go visit my dad at the university or wherever we were going oh we were God. going shopping 
I just knew where to get off. I just, and, I, and my dad actually had a professor friend who recently passed away. He'd come by the apartment we were living in and he would quiz me and I would just get him. I, I, it's just, I was born with a photographic memory. Now, sometimes I can't remember the name of somebody I've just been introduced to, but for some reason or another, I can remember facts, figures, places. It's more like where, where the event was held, yeah. especially if, I, if I've covered it. If I've covered the event, I just have this knack of remembering certain facts that they just stick in my mind for some reason. I, I don't know where it comes from. It's obviously somewhere in my family. Other people have have good DNA. I mean, it's just good DNA, I guess. Right. Well, you know, some people are some people are good at certain things. That that's my one of my hidden talents. Is like I just remember things. That's well, you're you're in the right position for that talent. <laughs> um, just so people understand how much experience you have being on site at USGA Championships and covering them. What's the total now of USGA Championships you've covered? It's now up to one hundred sixty three. Uh, I don't know if it's, I don't, there's, I think there might be people in the office who, who've done more. I think John Mummert, our photographer, he's, he claims he's done more. Now he's cut back his schedule a little bit over the last few years. He doesn't do as many events as he once did, but I know Ross Gallardo, who's our, who's our scoring guru and I think 150 plus. And uh, I mean, there's officials out there, I'm sure who've done a lot more than a hundred, yeah. but that's a it's a big number that's a big number it's a big number and actually i've done two more i did two more before i got to the usga so i've actually covered 165 i did the u.s open u.s senior open in 1998 back when i was living in california working for the newspaper i worked at so hey. actually the tupper is 165 but i don't count those as part of my as my number at the usga I just want to let you know that Lee Jansen won the 98 U.S. Open, just in case you forgot. I just want to let you know. I, I, I do remember that. Okay. I actually was, cover, I was covering a, a local guy who you know, Jason Gore, oh, that year. Oh, he qualified. Just, oh, my gosh. It only took us six minutes to start talking about Jason Gore. This is a record. Yes, that's right. And I was covering him up at the Olympic Club, and he didn't make the cut, but I was around. That was the year of the whole location on 18, I believe. It. Yeah, Payne Round Stewart. Round two was Payne a little... Was a little dicey. They had to bring Tom Meeks up, who's the director was the director of rules and competitions at the time, to explain it. It was uh, it was quite a quite a championship. Yeah, there's a lot going on with that one. I distinctly remember. Uh, uh, I think it was Payne Stewart horseshoeing a putt that rolled all the way off the yeah. ground. Yeah. Um, Tom Lehman too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, University of Arizona graduate. I'm guessing uh, a degree in English lit journalism, or did you just go straight to cryptography? Like what? How, what? <laughs> how, how, how did this work? Uh, I actually was a broadcast journalism major with a minor in journalism. <clears throat> I, had, I had desires of getting into television, realized it was, it was a pretty tough racket to get into. And I started working at the school newspaper as a junior. I, uh, they had an ad in the paper looking for writers. Never really written anything in my life before, but I love sports. I knew I wanted to do something with sports. I figured, why not give this a shot? Yeah. So I went down to the the paper was in the basement of the union the student union building met the editor and basically i got all kinds of crazy assignments i mostly intramurals swimming all the a lot of the minor sports you name it i did it and uh and i learned that my some of my stuff if i would probably went back and looked at it today i might laugh and be astonished of how bad some of it might have been but uh i that's where i cut my teeth yeah. and uh that was my that was the fall semester of 85 and then in 86 the guy who was supposed to be the sports editor somehow was forced out so they brought a new sports editor in and so they gave me the baseball beat which was at the time a great beat because Arizona baseball 
yeah. was really, really good at the time. And they were returning a lot of players. And they played a lot of games. So you could cover a lot of games during the week. And you'd get a chance to do a lot of stories. And uh, they ended up winning the national championship that year. Now, I didn't go because it was uh, the you know, school ended before the College World Series. But I got a chance to cover some great guys and, and really, really learned a lot. And then the following year, I became sports editor, covered the football team. And I uh, did some basketball, which was big time at that, at that point. Lou Olson's, uh, Lou Olson's era had begun, and the place was going mad for, for basketball. And, and then I got, landed a job uh, at a small paper in L.A. two weeks before I graduated. So that's kind of how it all started. Wow. So you you get to L.A., and, I'm, I'm man, I'm guessing going from, I mean, obviously University of Arizona, big school, but then you go to L.A., you got to be, I guess you, I mean, I'm thinking you just got to be just a tiny fish, just in an absolute massive, massive, massive ocean. Um, Right. Yeah. I worked for a small paper uh, in Glendale, California, which is a suburb, a little north of Los Angeles, not too far from Dodger Stadium and uh, mostly covered preps. And uh, again, working for a small paper, you get to do a lot of things that you got to do Dodger games. I uh, back then the Raiders would actually fly local members of the press on the team plane. Hey now, hey now. Uh, so I went to I went back to Green Bay for a game. I flew on the plane. I actually sat on the bus next to Howie Long, and he was giving me all kinds of stuff. He goes, "You're the guy in Glendale. He must be writing bad stuff about me." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Not me. I'm not. I'm not screwing around with Howie Long. He's a pretty gigantic man. I think I sat next to John Clay, who was a uh, offensive lineman. This was just on the bus ride up from the from the charter. Right." And so they would chart, they would put you on the team charter, and then you'd fly the game. It was on, I, I believe you flew in on a Friday, stayed overnight on uh, Friday and Saturday, and uh, covered the game. And then you'd have to get right back onto the bus. So you didn't really have time to write your story. You have to write your story basically on the plane. And I don't, at that time, I don't believe our paper published on Monday. So my story would run, I think, ran on Tuesday. So I, I did one trip with the Raiders back then. That was that was pretty cool. It was a little interesting. I mean, I young kid like me, I think I was 21, 22 at the oh time. Oh my gosh, so, hanging with the Raiders. Throwing me into, oh. Yeah, sitting on the playing with all these great Raiders. I mean, Marcus, I think Marcus Haynes was on the team. That, that was back in their heyday when they were really good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so and then I went from there to Santa Clarita, and that's where that's where the Jason Gore stuff comes in. I, I met Jason when he was 14, a freshman in high school. And I was at that paper in Santa Clarita for 10 and a half years before I landed the job at the USGA. So your first, so you land the job with the USGA, but what was kind of your first golf writing assignment? You know, we talk about how a lot, a lot of guests on the podcast, I always ask them, you know, how did you get into the game? And I'll definitely ask that to you as well a little bit yeah. later. But but <clears> what about your first golf writing assignment? I mean, was it covering Jason Gore or were, were there other kind of assignments that you had that cause um, that? that because just because you're, a, I mean, you're a sports writer, but at some point you have to get, you know, develop a passion for golf to be with the USJ yeah. for the 20 years you've been there. Right. I did a, I did a couple of golf stories in college. You know, you know, we didn't go out and cover tournaments because they didn't play any tournaments really at home back then. I think they had one event. Uh, but I remember Mike Springer came down to our, to our US, to our offices at the Daily Wildcat and asked for a photo. Um, and then I covered a little bit of stuff in Glendale. I think I did a couple features, and you take a couple of scores over the phone. But yeah, Jason was probably one of the big first big guys I, I got to cover because he was at the time fourteen. He was the up and co- an up and coming star, but I knew this kid was going to be pretty good. And so I basically chronicled all all his a lot of his high school matches. I would go to the postseason that he went to. Uh, there were other good players in the area too. A couple kid, one kid, Jason Summelsberger, 
qualified for the U.S. Open at Congressional in '97. He was 19, I think, at the time. Um, but yeah, that was that was basically it. And then in '98, I think what helped me get the job at the USGA were two two events: the U.S. Open at Olympic, where I got to go up there for a week, and then the U.S. Senior Open was at Riviera Country Club that year. And so I covered that. And then this, that same year, they moved to what was called the Nissan Open. I think it's now called the Northern Trust, whatever, Hyundai yeah. Genesis Open, yeah. whatever whatever sponsors doing the event these days. Um, that was played at Valencia Country Club in our backyard. And we did, I want to say, 10 to 11 special sections for that event. I mean, we were doing every little feature imaginable, writing up all the players. And I basically headed that up. So those three things... Got, got me a lot of good clips, a lot of good stuff that I could send when I saw the job opening for the USJ to send to them. And I think they saw what I had done. And I think that helped get me to the USJ and land, land a job that I did. So my first experience in a USGA media center was obviously not the typical because it was the 2020 US Amateur. First time meeting you yeah. and, and uh, you know, Brian DePasquale, manager of Championship Communications, but that was my first experience. And as many people can imagine, due to COVID, um, you know, I was very lucky just to get out there. It was like six of us that were wedged into a room that obviously appropriately was actually called the Wedge Room at Bandon Dunes. (laughs) And, you know, this is obviously a very different experience for me just being in the room, but obviously it was very different for you guys because there's no galleries there were multiple stages of COVID testing. Everything was very strict protocol and everything went very, very well, um, you know, safety wise, but this was anything but a typical media room. I think people would be kind of interested to hear maybe how the typical media center of a USGA is operated when, you know, whether it's this year's U S amateur or a U.S. open, you know, most people, they're watching it on TV. They see the highlights. They see the champion holding a trophy. Um, you know, obviously now with social media, you're seeing a lot of things, uh, you know, posted, whether it's a tweet, an article, photo, video. But, you know, you're writing the game stories. What is maybe for a typical USGA championship that you're, you know you're going to be on site, what is maybe your typical prep? And then what, what is your experience throughout the week? I know it's a big, big question, but like, you know, briefly, can you walk through that? So people understand? Yeah. Let me take it. Take one, one thing before I get into that is every championship's a little different in terms of media room, media size. Like if you go to the U S open, the media tent is a tent, right? I mean, it's ginormous. I remember the first time I walked in 98, my first U S open, I walked in there. I was like, Whoa. This is so much different than any event I've ever been to before because it was, I mean, there were hundreds of reporters in there. I mean, just dozens of rows of tables. And then obviously the USGA has got their setup up front, with their, you know, all their helpers. I mean, we used to call them the Minnesota 10, the guys that would come on site to assist us. Versus going to, let's say, the US Amateur, which might be a small conference room, depending on where it is and the, the size of the media market that we're in, if we're in a market where we know there's going to be 20 plus reporters and x amount of cameras and this that we may have a bigger room versus maybe a u.s junior where there might be five reporters there so we we try to set the room size accordingly we always said nowadays you have to make sure there's wi-fi and because everybody's doing multimedia stuff like yourself there's other 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 media outlets that are coming in doing photos and all kinds of other things that there's video um so that's basically the media room size it depends on the championship now for me 
my rules will depend on what championship I'm going to as well. If I'm going to the U.S. Open, I'm probably going to be writing a game. I'll probably write the game story for the day. I'm helping out with um, our photos that come in, doing the galleries, the captioning. I'm assisting other people looking for stories, going through notes. Um, a couple of weeks before the Open, I'm doing all the bios for all the players. So, uh, you know, it's that, way, that way I've actually got a pretty good idea of who's in the field and how they got there. Some of the more interesting storylines that might pop up, especially for qualifiers. Um, at the U.S. at the U.S. Amateur Football this year, not only writing a game story, but I was also helping out with media. So we had media coming in with credentials. We had to make sure they were getting they, they properly got tested, right. uh, which is something, it's something we didn't have to do nor on a normal circumstance. But this year, in last year with COVID, you had to make sure everybody was okay. You don't want people. Uh, somebody who's tested positive to be on the grounds and sure. make sure they were wearing a mask in the media room and that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's a lot of prep, you know, going through it. I'm reading, we have an online bio that all the players fill out and I, I go through those really tooth and comb. I mean, I'm looking for the best human interest story that might make for a great feature or might, might help another media guy out with a feature. Right. Um, I know uh, you mentioned Brian DePasco. He, and a couple of other people on staff, we'll go, we do these storylines before the championship. And we'll do maybe we'll identify 30 to 40 players. If it's the U.S. Amateur, maybe more because it's a bigger field. And we're looking to, looking to find good human interest stories that the media might want to write about or somebody like you might want to interview. Right. So we're, 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 we're not only providing content, but we're also assisting media so they can produce content. Very well said. Yeah, I, I definitely am a firsthand benefactor of that because I, I know that <laughs> in that room and just, you know, even you throwing out, hey, you know that that kid that just you know made it to the to the quarters, or that kid that just made the you know main match play in a playoff. Did you know that he did this? Right. Or he goes there, or you know his brother qualified, or his you know, sure. you know like obviously like like a Rachel Keen you know, with her mother uh, being a Walker, sure. cover, you know different things like that. Right, and you also have people coming to these championships that don't know a lot about amateur golf. Now the U.S. <laughs> Open. U.S. I'm serious. Yeah. U.S. Open is a little different animal. People know who Tiger is. People know who Phil Mickelson is, or Brooks Kepka, or, or Bryson DeChambeau. These are names that are on television day after day, year after year, and you've gotten to know them. When you go to the U.S. Junior Amateur, they don't know who Nicholas Dunlap is. They don't know who Cohen Trollio is. I mean, yes, the diehard guys that, that do this every day, yes, they know who some of these guys are, but the local media guy probably doesn't know who these guys are right. and you want to make sure you get that information to them so they can write a nice human interest piece because they come in a lot of times blind and you know, I, 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 it's oftentimes I'm at a championship and somebody will ask me well, what's a good story and, I, and I'll give them two or three good really good pieces uh, this year at the four ball we had uh, twins Davis, David and Max Ford yeah. and they were playing with different partners so you had the two brothers in the field, two twins, and they were not playing with, they were not teammates. They were playing with another, uh, uh, a different player. Each side was different, which was kind of unique. Usually a brother of tandem would play together. But in this case, uh, David was exempt because he was a top pointer player and wanted to play with another exempt player. Right. Whereas Max was not exempt. And so he had to go qualify with a partner. So there was, it's a lot of little inside information like that that you, you find out. But, that, but the, the local media guy might not know that. I uh, he probably dis- doesn't know that. I distinctly remember at Oakmont at the U.S. Amateur this year, someone asked me, and I know it was some sort of a media person. I do not remember the specifics of who they were, but I do remember them asking me who was leading. 
the U.S. Amateur Open. Yeah. And it was during match play. And I didn't know how to explain. <laughs> how, how do you explain? Yeah. yeah. So I, I got, right. I got lost in there. But no, you're right. It, it, and you know, we're we're in the world of amateur golf, and and there's other media that aren't. But it's great that they're giving it attention. It's it's right. Yeah, you want to make sure they know how to communicate the story uh, effectively. Yeah, the biggest thing I always tell people is we don't conduct tournaments either. We conduct oh, it's championships. championships. Oh my and God! Championships. Don't, yes. Don't say. Believe me, the first day I walked into the USGA in 1999, my my editor. I mean, he just drilled me to the proper terminology of things. It's like, it's not a tournament. It's a championship. It's not a sand trap. It's a bunker. It's not a pin. It's a flag stick. You have to, and, and, and when you're running for the USGA, you have to use the proper terminology or somebody is going to get on you. And so believe me, I, I made, I made a few mistakes early on, but you, you it's ingrained in you that you use the proper terminology. What's in the rule book? What's the proper vocabulary for, for, for golf terms. Uh, you can't use slang stuff. You have to make sure it's proper. I know that probably, it probably infuriates a few people, but that's just the way it is. I, I, I catch myself at, at USGA events. I, I, I start saying, Oh no, no. I, 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 I've done it before. I've, I've done it. So I know what you're talking about. Hey, we, I, I have seen, and I won't name names. I've seen some people associated with the USJ who sometimes they tournament. Oh, so you're not alone. It's, 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 you know, it's human nature. I mean, we, everything's called a tournament. It is, it's a competition. But yes, these are championships. We run that. We conduct national championships. Yes, yes, yes. You do. So your yeah. your first one, I think you mentioned uh, in '99 was. Uh, well, I know you met, you joined in, in the uh, USGA in '98, '99, and then your first right. championship was the uh, u.s junior and i actually looked it up and i'm sure you know this but actually in 99 that was the uh the year of the the record amount of entries so the most number of entries for the u.s junior was in 1999 and right. you know, this is your first year on staff and it's kind of interesting that you're coming in really right after or just as the tiger effect is hitting the game i mean he obviously wins his, right. his first masters in 97 and then it's all systems go with with nike and you know i'm guessing there's a few kids running around wearing red shirts and black hats that week um i don't i don't remember all the odd tire the kids were wearing but yes i think tiger definitely had an effect on the, on the number of kids playing and, and he made the game cool yeah i mean god when i was when i started playing golf in the high school in the in the in the, in the early 80s I mean, people thought I was, you know, a geek. You know, it's like, I'm like, grandfather plays golf. Why are right. you playing golf? You know, it's like you plaid pants and, you know, odd clothing. And, you know, it just was not, the game was not as chic as it, as it became when Tiger started winning, started looking, looking like an athlete, you know, strong, fit, supple, hits the ball a mile. And so you started to see that as a byproduct in the late 90s. And uh, like you said, it was one of my first events. It wasn't my first event on staff i had done the u.s open i had done the women's pub links but the junior amateur that year ended up you know back then it was it was crazy you played two rounds of stroke play then you had double rounds of match play every day so you went 64 32 16 8 and then four and two so you played the semis and finals on the same day they didn't have a 36 hole final back then and my final that year well that morning we actually had a hailstorm which delayed play you had all these volunteers there with their with their ball fixers fixing all the marks oh of the green <laughs> so that was that was the start of the championship day and then the final ended up being camilla vajegas long before he got it developed his guns right after going to florida and, and, and bulking up a little bit and hunter hunter mayhan who 
you know, he was wearing the sunglasses. He was, you know, he was, was a Southern California kid. He was living in Texas. They moved to Texas, but he had that Southern California kind of cool to him. And he ended up beating Camillo in the final. And, you know, those guys obviously went on to have great careers. Uh, Camillo couldn't have been, a, he was such a nice kid. He was very sh- quiet. Uh, he was there with his, uh, with his Colombian, a uh, guy who was part of the Colombian national team. Right, right. I think his name was Felipe Harker. And uh, he was his caddy. And no, he didn't have his parents there with him. He was just a super polite kid. Thank you. You know, that, that type of stuff. And then Hunter, Hunter had a great summer. He had won the Western, I believe, in the North and South. He became the first kid to win the North and South Western Junior and U.S. Junior in the same year. And he he was out. He came in as the as the guy. You know, right. he was the pre-championship favorite. He wasn't a medalist, but he was the pre-championship favorite, and he lived up to the billing and uh, ended up winning. Now we we were at the U.S. Junior this year. You mentioned Nicholas Dunlap and Cohen Trollio. Yeah. You know, Dunlap beat Trollio in the final, and you know, you just mentioned two fantastic juniors, uh, uh, Mahan and and Vijegas, and you know, you've seen some of the best juniors come through the last 20 years. And, you know, for every Brian Harmon and Jordan Spieth that goes on to the PGA Tour, there's a Jordan Cox and a Jay Wang that are the runners-up that don't make it. And I know know that... Philip Francis. Philip Francis, yeah. I mean, I know this is 20 years, but do you remember, and and maybe maybe it was Vijegas, maybe it was Mayhem, but do you remember getting an impression on any junior over the last 20 years that you... I mean, obviously, it's very, very early. But do you remember looking at a kid and saying, "Yep, that that kid's going to make it"? Well, Jordan Speed, for one. I okay. mean, he just had a certain aura about him. Even when he won, won his that that year, he won the first one. I was covering the girls that year. We had the girls and the boys at Trump National at the same time. And actually, my winner was Amy Anderson, who's now Amy Olson on the LPGA Tour. Yeah. Uh, and a great trivia question about that one is: two medalists won that year. Um, Interesting, but Jordan, Jordan, Jordan just had this something about him. You could just tell he was, he was different. He, he obviously had physical talent, but there was a mental makeup to this kid that he, he, he was super polite, etiquette. He was, this was the complete package. He had the golf game. He had the demeanor. You could tell he was raised well by his parents, both who were athletes. His dad, in fact, played baseball at Lehigh University, not far from where I live. Um, but he was the one kid. And uh, I thought Philip Francis was a can't miss kid. You know, I watched him play in 06 out at Rancho Santa Fe. There was, there was just, uh, I mean, nothing seemed to face him. Like it was like 90 degrees outside. And you, the kid's hardly breaking a sweat. Uh, and he was dominant. And you just thought, God, this kid's going to make it. And, uh, and it just turned out just, it didn't happen. I mean, he went to UCLA. It didn't happen there. I think he transferred it. Arizona State didn't happen there. I mean, it's just you just never know with some of these kids that right. uh, when they go to college, some you know things change. You know, the, their bodies change. They find other interests. Uh, who knows? It's just it's a it's a weird thing. Sometimes kids come out of nowhere, and sometimes kids you know are studs at 13, 14, 15, and then when they get to be twenty, they're they're out of the game. Um, it's he, he just said like I, I just threw the story on Jim Liu for our next Golf Journal magazine. He was the number one junior in the country. Uh, he he broke Tiger Woods' age record in 2010 when he won the Junior Am. He was a medalist three, I think, but three times medalist. Uh, he also should have won a second one in 12. He was five up at the lunch break, ended up losing to this Andy Boham Shin, who's another kid who's we don't know where he's at. He's a, He's completely out of out of the game. Okay. Uh, but he goes to Stanford, 
he's, he's everybody wants this kid. He's a super bright kid. He's got the complete package, but he, he runs into a little back injury. So his game doesn't live up to what he expected it to be. And a year and a half, two years later, he's, he's off the, he quit the golf team and just became a student. And now he's working on the financial world in San Francisco. Uh, he's a great kid. He's, you know, he's probably going to do very well for himself. He's, he's got the everything going for him. It's just golf game wise. It, it just never material. I never took it to that next level where you thought it would, where it would go. I I'm listening just the, the passion that you have for it and just the experiences that you've had, just seeing all these young kids and, and obviously they, they progress to the USA and where they progress to professional ranks. And I'm just thinking back now, you know, you're really, you're looking at 98, 99, you know, we're looking at 20 years. And if I go through the Rolodex of just kind of the, the media friend, if there's going to be a media frenzy in the last 20 years, I mean, you're, you're, you're post tiger, so there's not, you know, he's gone. And I'm guessing, I mean, is it fair to say that the most interesting media frenzy you experienced was maybe around Michelle Wee? Oh, definitely. Uh, okay. And uh, I, I go back with Michelle to 2000, actually, when she was 10 years old. And she became the youngest player to ever qualify for any open, I think it was any open USJ championship is what the record. There were there was like Beverly Class and a few others that never qualified. They just basically back in the day you just signed up right, and right because they didn't have the numbers they just you just got into the championship well she qualified at 10 and she was five feet six i went back and actually looked at the story i wrote the little sidebar i wrote on her from 2000 she was five feet six she looked like she was in high school i mean i mean just physically now you can tell you looked at her face and, and the way she talked and you could tell she was still 10 but right. Golf wise, she was beyond her years. I remember one mother came up to me and she goes, That can't be 10. She points at her daughter, that's 10. Her daughter was like, you know, four feet, you know, just a little pipsqueak. Right. But uh, so Michelle Wee qualifies and she, and nobody knew, knows who Michelle Wee is at, at that time. And she was just kind of this, you know, 10 year old. We all thought, Wow, a young kid's going to play in the championship. Let's go see what she's got. And she ends up making the cut at 10 and lost in the first round of Cindy Lee three and two. But you could kind of sense something was special. Something's there. coming. Yeah. And every year, she, the next year in 01, she qualified again for the Publix. She ends up playing Hillary Lunky, who is a Curtis Cup player, ends up winning the U.S. Women's Open a couple years later. She, she hit all 17 greens in regulation and beat her, I think it was two and one in the second round. Uh, I mean, this is on 11. And, you know, the one thing that she didn't, that she, you could tell was might be an issue with her and uh it kind of stood with her the rest of her career was her putting she 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 struggled on short putts and that kind of led to some early ousters and some magic i remember she lost to maru martinez at philadelphia country club in the women's am i believe that was 03 she missed a couple short putts in that match uh in two at sun river she lost the i think she lost the quarterfinals uh, putting was kind of a thing there. And then the next year, she obviously won. She beat Barada near a path punk porn, who was a Duke All-American, who would win the women's amateur a month later. Uh, she beat her in the final. And that was kind of the, the, the takeoff for Michelle. Is the more and more she played in USG events, she started trying to qualify for some U.S. Women's Opens. Uh, the, the, the legacy was starting to be built. And, uh, and then the, the big one was 2005, when she qualified for the men's U.S. Amateur Public Links, not the women's, right. the men's. And people thought, why is she here? And she goes, well, was she qualified? She went through the 36-hole process. She played from the from their, from their tees that they used for the championship. She got into the field, and it was like, 
mass hysteria. I mean, there were people coming out of the woodwork to come to this golf course outside of Cincinnati. It was it was a circus. We we had a media room set up in a I think it was an old cart barn. And you know, there's a good number of media there to start. Golf Channel was there, some of the, the normal pe- people who cover it. But every day, more and more people, as the more she advanced, more and more people were showing up. She beat, I think she beat Paul Claxton from Auburn in the first round. And she beat this kid, CJ Hockersmith, in the second. And that kid was like, he had lost. You could tell he was he was not going to win on the first tee. There were cameras there, and he was totally petrified. Oh, my God. I mean, he had never, he never, you know, some of these kids had never played in front of cameras. Before. Right. Yeah, they and don't know. You know, you got, you, got, you got media moving around. It's like, you know, the, kind of like the Tiger, you know, with Tiger's opponents kind of felt like back in the day when they're all moving around and people are cheering and yelling and they're, they're not quite used to it. And then in the third round, she beat Jim Renner, who was a Johnson and Wales, not the, uh, not the Renner that was on the tour. Right, right. Uh, the, the older Renner. But, uh, and then in the quarterfinals, she ran into Clay Ogden and he took her out five and four pretty handily. But the thing is, we had to like make announcements on the website that there's no more parking available. Oh my God. I mean, this place was a pretty good sized facility. I mean, it was a public course with 27 holes. It had a pretty good, it was kind of out in the open. It wasn't like landlocked with, you know, buildings or anything else. If there was some parking available, we had to basically say there was no more parking available. Well, when she loses, and it was a Friday morning, the whole place cleared out. <laughs> I mean, there were nobody, there was like 10 people left watching. Ron Balicki was there covering, late Ron, Ron, uh, who was a great golf writer for Golf Week, myself and a few others. And playing in the afternoon is a guy named Anthony Kim. You might have heard of him. He's uh, he yeah. made it on the tour. He was an All-American in Oklahoma. Nobody's watching him. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody cared. Michelle, we was out. The circus you know, left town. And the thing is, the only the biggest thing that saved me that week, because that was the first time I actually had worked a championship as a media relations person, because back then we, had to, we, were, you know, we were kind of spread thin, and so they had to use extra people to help out. So I'm doing this for the first time from a media relations perspective. I've got Michelle Wee playing. I've got a massive amounts of media there. Beth Murison, who now, who's now Beth Major, came in basically just to handle crowd control out on the golf course. John Mummer, our photographer, came in just to shoot her. Hmm. In fact, we were joking that he would, that he would make up business cards, the official photographer of Michelle <laughs> Wee. <laughs> and so, and then I had myself, and we had another photographer shooting the other stuff. And so the best the big the biggest thing that saved me that week was that british hope was also going out at the time so all the major golf writers were over in the uk but they were still following her here we had the when i when we ran the numbers for the website hits it was like off the charts it was like 11 million people were would, had logged on to the site to check scoring because so many people were interested in the story and uh and we were one more round away. In fact, Marty Parks, who used to be our senior director of communications, flew in that morning. We were one more win away. If she had got one in the quarters of moving the media center to the actual clubhouse, because I was running out of room. I mean, I had, I had guys from the New York Times coming in. I had uh, Mike Rick from Golf Channel. It was, it was, the best way to describe it, it was a circus. And Beth Major will tell you the same thing. It was crazy. It was one of the weeks of, of my career at the USGA. Even something crazier than what you see in the U.S. Open, because it was on a smaller scale, but it was like U.S. Open-esque type height. Well, and, uh, and, and I'm and, guessing at a U.S. Open, I'm glad you brought that up, because, you know, obviously I've seen you at, at amateur events. I'm guessing, obviously, it's a lot bigger at a U.S. Open, but maybe the media there is a little bit more 
uh, accustomed to covering it, or or is that not a fair statement? Like, what is do you, no, do you notice? Have, do you notice a big difference? Do you notice a big difference between the, the amateur uh, events and and the professional events? Oh sure, there's just more people there. Number right. one, but I mean, other, but uh, but I mean, but other than that, I'm sorry. Other than um, the, the yeah. volume, other than volume. Well, we have we have more staff on site to handle that type of thing. And we've got multiple people helping out in what we call the flash area, where we bring the players in to get interviewed after rounds or before the championship. And yes, you've got a generally a much more knowledgeable press. You know, you got the national as a cover cover golf on a regular basis now. More and more, you're not seeing as many per se golf writers at for these papers, but yeah, they've got people covering for these papers who really know the game. Are you the guy that has to go grab a, a Bryson DeChambeau or, or have to go grab a Phil Mickelson or grab a Brooks Kepka and say, excuse me, uh, Brooks, we need you over here for a minute. How does that work? And, uh, that is done by our, our media relations staff. So I'm, I'm technically in contact. So guys, like you mentioned, Brian DePasquale, Joe, Joey Geske, uh, Julia Pine. And so we, and we also we also get some volunteers that help us out. We, we, we might get a local SID uh, to come help. It just depends on the, where, where the championship is and what our, what, our, uh, what our resources are. But we've got a huge amount of people that help out just in that media services area. So what you're saying is they just keep you as far away as possible from all the talent is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm more, or less the, I'm more or less a media guy now. I'm, right. I'm, I'm in the scrum or I'm at the, I'm at the flash here listening to the players when they come in. I'm not the one generally going to grab them. So they'll come into scoring. Obviously they got to they got to sign their cards, do sure. all that. And then we ask them politely, when you come to flash and most of them will do flash the days of the guy coming to the media room anymore, especially after like, let's say a first or second round are pretty much over. Yeah. You don't see that very often that much anymore. Players just don't, they just want to do the flash and be done with it. Uh, you know, occasionally you get guys who want to come down to the media center, but it's almost like they're repeating themselves. Right, exactly. You know, they're, they're getting asked a lot of the same questions. Now, at the end of the championship, for the final championship interviews, yes, they do, they come to the media center, usually have the trophy, and it's a long, lengthy session, and then they're doing multiple media stuff. They're not only doing the media room, but, you know, Golf Channel gets them one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, ESPN may get them one-on-one, -on -one. depending on uh, rights holders and all that kind of stuff. They'll they get these players one on one for five ten minutes. Now, so it's a little more. It's 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 a little. It's structured, but it's a little. It's a little crazy. Sure. No, I've 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 seen it at a USAM where it's it's. I saw it at Oakmont where I I mean obviously sure. it's not the full full boat of a US Open, but I I can definitely understand where how crazy it can get. Now, you've seen oh, sure. a lot of you've seen a lot of champions in these in these uh you know championship press conferences so to speak. You've seen it with the trophy and is there one that comes to mind where you're thinking man i'm glad i'm here for this because obviously you've been in a lot of them they're thanking their, yeah. their family they're thanking their coach they're thanking this and oh boy that putt on 18 really did it for me you know when the ball went into the hole that's when i knew i won yeah I mean, you've heard all the, the but i mean which is the one that you're like man this is good i don't want this to end that's that's kind of hard it's like, sometimes it's like asking which kid do you like the best no but, i know well these you know, are tough questions I, I tell you i tell you one that does stand out it wasn't it wasn't an individual championship it was the curtis cup in 2002 at pittsburgh uh carol Semple thompson legend you know i call her the one of the great ambassadors for women's golf she's won uh, seven usj titles uh won a women's amateur she's won a She's won two mid-ams and four seniors. Well, she, she's playing, I think she was in her 50s at the time. Yes, she was in her 50s at the time. And she got picked for the Curtis Cup team in 2002. And it's in her backyard in Pittsburgh at Fox Chapel. And it's a Sunday. 
and it's singles. And, uh, and the format was a little different. They didn't. It was just a two-day event back then. They hadn't gone to three. But she makes a 27-foot putt from off the green on the last hole to believe to win her match. And the noise, I mean, normally a curse cup, it's a nice, polite golf clap. You know, you get a yeah. few cheers. It was electric. You could feel it. I got goosebumps when she made that putt. And it's one that will stand in my, my memory bank for a long, long time. And she even mentions it in one of the great, you ask her about her, all of her championships, and she'll probably go right to that Curtis Cup memory. I mean, it's just, you're, it's, you can't write a script any better. You're in your hometown. You're at playing for your country. It's the Curtis Cup. You're, you're going to win the match, and you make this great putt on the last hole. It's your last Curtis Cup as a player. I mean, it's a storybook ending. Uh, it just, you just can't write scripts better than that. So that's one that really stands out for me uh, as, as pretty, pretty memorable. And then one that wasn't a champion, obviously, we talked about Jason Gore in 2005. He's a qualifier. He's playing on the Corn Ferry Tour. He, he gets Pinehurst. He's, he, for three days, he plays this incredible golf. He's now in the final group with Retief Gusa. Are you kidding me? That week before, his car got broken into it. They stole a whole bunch of stuff, including, I think, his his stereo system and i remember the golf channel arranged to get all that stuff replaced so it's this cool story a qualifier this kid's playing in the final group and unfortunately she shoots 84 and i think her team shot like pretty close to that they played like you know 35 handicappers that last day yeah. but still when you see a kid you 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 know and you know since he was 14 get to that pinnacle and his mom's there his wife's there you know it's just the, the crowd's behind this underdog story you know, he's a Cinderella kid. It's almost like Francis we met. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the final pairing, and he just didn't have it the last day. But still, it was for me personally. That was really a cool moment for me. And I got writers coming up and asking me questions about his background. And you know, and uh, Tim Rosenfort's coming up to ask you about Jason Gore. You know, you feel kind of special. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> because these guys, know, I I know Jason probably better than any anybody out there. I mean, I've chronicled his career since he was fourteen, and uh, you know through his Walker Cup, through winning the Pac-12s when he played in Arizona for two years, his national championship in Pepperdine, all that stuff. So I've just, you know, I've known him for so long and all, all of his exploits. And to see that, that was pretty cool. And now uh, and now you guys are coworkers. And now, now, you know, I, I was out in Vegas. I, you know, I go out to Vegas every year for March Madness to watch the games and bet and play a little golf and all that stuff. And I, I, I look at my email on my phone, and I'm seeing – Jason Gore is coming to the USJ as our player representative liaison for the USJ. And I'm sitting there going, is this, is, 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 is the world come full circle? Is this seven degrees of like Jason Gore hitting me in the face? He just couldn't, <laughs> and, uh, he, just, he wanted to be as close I mean, to you as this possible. Thing and I'm like, oh my God. You know, and then I get back to the office and I'm chatting with him and it's just like, we've gone to lunch a couple of times and we've reminisced about a few things. And yeah, I mean, Jason is just, He's, he's the same kid now. He's the same personality he was when he was 14. I mean, he's the, this, he, he's one of the great people. He's just, yeah. I don't know of anybody who doesn't like Jason Gore. I mean, every pro out there loves Jason Gore. He's just got that, he's got an infectious personality. He, uh, he doesn't take himself too seriously. He's obviously got great talent, you know, to play on the tour as many as long as he has. I think he's got the record for the most wins on the corner tour. He too. does. That, that, would, that, would, uh, that would be seven, by the way. Yeah, 50. I know he shot the 59 in Omaha yeah. the year because I got the battlefield promotion that year. The, the joke was 
He shot 84 in the final round at the U.S. Open and won the 84 Lumber Classic later in the year on the PGA Tour. Yeah, that's so terrible. That's <laughs> <laughs> so bad. But, you know, it's just, he, he's just Jason. And yeah. he, he's always got a smile on his face. It's like nothing bothers him. Uh, well, I, don't know, I've, I've, I don't know if I've ever seen him get angry, even on the golf course. Like, the great thing about Jason was when you'd interview him, whether he won the tournament, finished last, or had a bad day, he was still gracious. He was always the same person, never changed. So, like you just mentioned, it was funny you just mentioned that. That just reminded me of something. Like, you know, when you're getting interviews of these, you know, these players, you know, you know, one of the t- I'm guessing one of the toughest parts of your job comes on the day that the actual championship is decided, because you know, in stroke play events, you know, you might have the leader like a Jason Gore or, or that collapses, yeah. or you know, a chaser that falls just one putt short. But and you know there's heartbreak, but but you know it's not the same as in match play, especially in these junior amateurs or amateurs or they're all, they're all kids. Yeah. I mean, doesn't matter. You got one li- win winner, one loser. It's head to head. You know the winner is going to obviously answer all your questions because they're holding a damn trophy. But someone's got to go get the loser and get a quote. How do you yeah. how do you navigate that part of the job? Uh, you be as professional as you can. You know, you, what I've learned too over the years is give them about five to ten minutes. Don't go up and interview them right on the green, right when it's over. Uh, I've made that mistake before, and it 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 can end badly. There's tears. There's just sometimes the, the right words don't come out of their mouth. It's right. just it, it's not great. So the, my my rule of thumb is, if you can, give them five to ten minutes. Let them cool off a little bit. Let them talk to their parents. If it's a you know if a parent situation, or if it's a mid end, let them talk to their wife or caddy or whoever's there in the crowd following them. Let them. Let them deal with that, and then you just go up to them politely. Said you got a few seconds, and they usually talk. I mean, they understand you got a job to do. You, I just want to get a couple quotes from them. Try to be as fair as with them as possible. Ask them about the other player. Ask them about their week. Obviously, they've had a great run to the championship. You try to keep it as positive as you can. Get them to to open up as much as they can. And sometimes you get a great interview out of them. Sometimes you. And sometimes it's, you know, there's a lot of tears. I remember Morgan Pressel, she did not handle losing very well. Great girl, but I tell you, there were so many tears, especially when she was a junior. I remember one year at the at Cockwood Club, I'm chasing, this was, I think, in the quarters or semis. We, we had to get a quote from her, and I chased her. She's in the car with her, with her grandfather, Herb, and I, I rolled down the window. You got to get a quote. You try to be fair and balanced. You don't want to write a story. You should not have the other side of the story. It's just, it's, this doesn't look, I mean, trying to be fair and balanced. And, and if you can do that, you can get the other, get a quote, do it. I mean, there's been situations where it's been, I mean, a little weird. I remember, I think Anthony, Anthony Kim, I think it was 06. And apparently he, right after the match, he bolted to like to the airport and didn't do any interviews. And, and uh, the guy who was going to represent him eventually basically had to call him on the phone and said, Anthony, you get your butt back here. And you talk to these reporters and be professional about it. So he came back. Wow. Uh, yeah, we had one other situation like that. And I uh, hate to, I mean, Brooke Henderson's a great player, great person, but she lost in the final to uh, Gilman. And, you know, we waited till after the prize ceremony and everything else, went up to the interview and she said she didn't want to talk. I'm going, what? Since when does somebody not want to talk after the final? We just want to get a couple. She didn't want to talk. She gets in her car and starts to drive away. Well, uh, another reporter tweeted this out that, that she didn't want to talk. Well, Golf Canada got involved. Uh-huh. And they basically said, you better talk to these reporters. So she ended up calling into the media center 
at Nassau Country Club. We interviewed her over the phone for like five, 10 minutes. So sometimes it's a little crazy, but uh, for the most part, uh, players are pretty good after. I mean, you just you just have to give them a few seconds to yeah. let it let it sink in a little bit, let it die down from the from the emotion, of, and then they'll they usually give you five ten minutes. Yeah, That's actually, a, the winners are much easier. Yeah, but, I was yeah. gonna say yeah, the winners won't shut up. They're uh, no, they're, yeah, the winners the winners will take you through thirty six holes of match play if you let them. Um, right, right, right. But uh, but those are the easy ones. Now, I, you know. One of the things about my year, I mean, we're not going to recap every single USJ championship, but one of the things about my year, you know, I had four weeks consecutively on the road and, you know, great championships, U.S. Junior, Western, U.S. Women's, and then finally at Oakmont. But, you know, I really, really enjoyed the U.S. Women's Amateur. And not just the, mm-hmm. the, the skill. Uh, I mean, the skill is tremendous. The The play on the golf course w- was fantastic. But I just really enjoyed the vibe around Westchester. I enjoyed the, um, you know, serious golf, but man, it just seemed like they were every girl there and woman there was having a great time. You know, I saw, I can't remember her name, but she, she, uh, missed the cut. She was from Portland. She was wearing the Yankee cap. I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. And, uh, and, and uh, no, I maybe mean, Ellie, no, not Ellie Slana. No. But but my long story short, she shoots probably eighty one seventy six, misses the cut. But there she is with her dad, getting ready to leave. She's got a big bag of stuff that she got out of the pro shop, and she's got a smile mm-hmm. from ear to ear, and she's going home. And yeah, you just see a lot of that. And you know, do you? I know you want don't want to play favorites as to which tournament. Well, I'm sorry, damn it, I did it again. Which <laughs> champion? I don't. I know which championship is your favorite, but yeah. do you seem to feel that way too about the women's am and the and the the women's four ball? Uh, it's every amateur championship I cover. Uh, okay, it's amateur golf. Period. Um, my favorite amateur championship actually is the mid am for the stories because the mid am is the guys that have a lot of them have tried professional golf. They realize they're never going to make it. So they, they get their status back and uh, they have regular jobs. They have families. They squeeze in golf where they can, but they're at an incredible high level. And they have a lot of them have some fantastic stories to tell uh, because they've lived life. So they've got, you know, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're finance guys, insurance guys, they're dentists, whatever they're whatever they doing. They're caddies. Some of them caddy full time on the tour, but they have this incredible skill that they can still play and they can come to the championship and give it a shot to try to win the national championship. But getting back to your point, you know, these, you know, you go to these amateur competitions and so many of them are just happy that they qualified. I'll find you've played the mid-am. You know how tough it is to get into a championship. So many people don't want to try to do it. Every amateur championship I go to these, so many of these players are so appreciative of number one, they're playing in a great venue. That's in incredible shape. They're being treated well. I mean, we give them great, gifts they're playing the golf courses are immaculate the competition's incredible uh and, they, and they're getting this opportunity to play against the best players in their respective area yeah uh and uh, you know you mentioned the women's amateur i mean westchester was fantastic yeah i mean you walked in the door and they were the, the hospitality the, from the membership uh the golf course itself uh just the, the quality of the field that like you mentioned women's amateur golf i mean geez these kids are incredible yeah the, 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 and I, in 22 years, the, the, the quality of the women's game has gotten so much better. They're, and they're coming from everywhere. They're coming from all points of the world. Uh, the instruction, the, 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 the athleticism of these girls, the, 
the, the way they play, I mean, the way they conduct themselves, it's, it's remarkable. And, it's, and, and I hope it continues on this upward trend. I really do. Yeah, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up about the, the, the level of play that's increased. I mean, we can go back to and, – and the great thing is now, believe it or not, I mean, there's a lot of negative – lot of negative things with COVID that are, are tragic. But for some reason, it has caused people to get back out on the golf course at record numbers. And this is – I mean, it's almost like we're experiencing another kind of like a tiger boom, so to speak, where golf is booming again. And I think it's only going to get better. Yeah. Well, it's one of the few sports you can do. You can, one yeah. of the things you can do outside yeah. you, during the pandemic. You know, you're you, you, nobody wants to sit in their house all the time, but you could go out and play golf because you're outside. And the chances of you picking up the virus outside were pretty limited. Uh, I know the courses around here they were packed, and there were some people who said they couldn't get push carts because so many people wanted them because a lot of courses weren't allowing you to use a you know the like cart, cart. So you yeah. had to, so you had to walk. So a lot of people wanted a push cart and. You, the stores didn't have them. They were, they were backward. Yeah, and another thing that people probably listening fail to you know recognize and realize, I mean, a lot of people that are that are playing competitive golf that listen to this podcast, they, they understand it. But, you know, in the summer, I understand. That's where you're going to find a lot of the PGA Tour and LPGA Tour majors and all the big tournaments. But, you know, the majority of the amateur tournaments are obviously in the summer. You know, at a PGA Tour event, you got it. You're behind the ropes, and you got a gallery in front of you, and they're yelling mashed potatoes, and then there's people all liquored up, and it just, you know, that's it's been seen. But the level of access you get at a USGA Championship or any of these elite amateur events, I mean, you're right there. You're right there, and the spectators are right there. When you go to like to even to a Walker or Curtis Cup, you can walk the fairways with these matches. Yeah, you can see these players up close and personal. You you go out to a even the U.S. Open, you can't get that close to the players. On the, I mean, there's ropes. Yeah. Uh, and the access to a lot of times these players is limited. Whereas in the U.S. Amateur, you know, they might be done playing. I see, I see players signing autographs for young kids, signing flags, talking to spectators, thanking the membership. Yeah. Uh, thanking volunteers. Uh, it's really these kids understand. The players who come to the USA Championships understand. I think what goes into into putting on one of these championships. It's not just the golf course itself, it's the membership, it's the agronomy staff, it's the food and beverage staff. And if they're treated to a good time and we've put on a great show for these kids, they're going to go back to their clubs and their, in their courses and their college teams or high school teams and say, wow, what a great experience that was. Uh, and that's what we want. We want them to feel like they're playing in the U.S. Open, even though it might be the U.S. Junior or the Girls Junior. Well, and what's funny is that these kids are basically playing in the equivalent of that. And if you come out <laughs> yeah. and if you come out and watch these players, these are the ones you're going to see in two or three years. I mean, I'm walking the fairways at U.S. Amateurs and, and U.S. Juniors, and I'm seeing players that I'm talking to, and I know that in two, three, four years, maybe even less, you're going to see them on TV. And mm-hmm. it's just an it's an incredible opportunity to I mean go watch these kids right yeah like I will go back to this two I, I did the story on Jim Lewis I went back and looked at the 2010 U.S. Junior Amateur I looked at the field holy cow Jordan Spieth Curtis Thompson Xander Shoffley Bryson DeChambeau uh, I think Michael Gellerman was in that field who played at Oklahoma is now on tour there were probably ten to twelve players in that field that uh, Chad Rainey played in that field, just got his tour card. Didn't he make the cut? They were in that field. They're now playing professional golf, either on the Corn Ferry Tour or the PGA Tour. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, I covered the 2012 Girls Junior, my semifinalists, uh, Aria Jutanagarn, Allison Lee, 
Minji Lee and Lydia Ko. <laughs> That's that was your semifinals. Good God! You know, and then Lydia Ko that the year before she came over for the first time, she was the number one player in the world from New Zealand. Nobody had ever heard. Nobody really knew this girl. We knew she was number one in the world, and we were going, "What has she done?" Right. Well, she just comes. She comes and qualifies. She had to qualify back then. We didn't have the. Uh, we didn't use the world rank amateur golf ranking for exemptions until the next year. So she had to come to the States and qualify, which is no easy feat. In fact, yeah. a lot of players won't do that from a foreign country, especially as far away as New Zealand. Well, she comes and qualifies, gets to the U.S. Women's Amateur Rhode Island Country Club, shares medalist honors. Okay. <laughs> we know she can play. She ended up losing the second round to a girl named Stephanie Kono, who was, pretty, it was a UCLA All-American Curtis Cup player. But you could just see the talents. I think she was probably 14 or 15 at the time. Uh, you could just see that this girl is going to be special. And obviously the next year she ended up winning the women's amateur yeah. and losing the semis of the, uh, of the girls junior. So incredible, incredible stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it, that's the beauty of covering our, covering our amateur competition, especially the, the juniors in the, in the, in the amateur cup championships, because you are seeing the future of the game. I mean, you're, you know, not everybody obviously is going to make it, but there's going to be two or three who say, hey, I remember back when Michelle, we was playing in the girls' junior. I remember when I saw Lydia Ko, you know, win the women's amateur, that kind of stuff. Minji Lee went in the girls' junior. And then Minji Lee's brother ends up winning the junior am a few years later. Yeah. <laughs> Same. He's now and, on the European tour winning events. Yep. No, you're you're 100% right. The the talent level, I mean, it's got to start somewhere, and, and all the great uh, talent runs through the USGA at some point. Yeah. And like this year at the Junior Air, we had a kid get into the field on exemption from, he was from Ukraine. I had another kid from Bulgaria, another kid from Russia. They're coming from South America, Australia, New Zealand, China. I mean, it's, they're coming from everywhere. And now with the now with the fact that we exempt so many players based off the WAGR, we're, kids can now come to the United States and play in our championships without having to go through the qualifying process, which makes it you know they're guaranteed a spot in the field, which makes it a lot easier for them to spend the money to come over here and play. I'm going to get you out of here because you have more stories than anyone I've ever had on the back of the range, and I thank you for being <laughs> this encyclopedia of amateur golf knowledge. But I got to ask you one of the things that. I get asked all the time that I'm sure you get asked all the time is, wow, Ben, I, I saw you at Oakmont or I saw you were at, uh, you were at Westchester. Do you get to play the golf course? Everyone thinks that I go there, show up, I take a couple of pictures and then I'm out playing golf. That's not really the case. Um, what that has to be one of the, one of the perks, one of the many perks of your job I'm sure there's times maybe after the championship's over on, on a Sunday or a Monday, um, you get to tee it up. Is there, uh, has that happened? Is there, I mean, I know you played Westchester. Oh. I know you played oh, yeah. Westchester, but I mean, there's gotta be one that maybe is at the top of the list. Like, I can't believe they're paying me to write and then I get to go play. Yeah, there's a couple. <laughs> yes. I the, <laughs> yes. Uh, the best one, the best one is the, is, is 2018. I, uh, the U S girls studio was at Poppy Hills and Pebble beach inside 17 mile drive. And we had all these fog delays and, uh, we were wondering if we were going to finish on, on Saturday on time. And the reason I say that is on Sunday, one of the, one of my colleagues at the USJ had arranged for us to play Cypress point. Oh. Well, Cypress point is, as many people know, is one of the top, two or three golf courses in the world. It's been on my bucket list forever. And, I, and as soon as we got this set up, it's like, oh my God, I can't wait. I mean, I've, I've seen, I've heard, I've read the match. I've, I've 
seen pictures, I've, I've heard stories. Enough, you know, you hear everything about Cypress Point. Well, we're wondering if we're going to get done on Saturday. Right. Because of all these fog delays. Uh, and if it goes to Sunday, if we finish up on Sunday, well, guess what? Cypress Point's closed on Monday. We're not playing Monday. Oh, no. And we're, headed to, we're, we're scheduled to fly home, I think, Monday night or Tuesday, whatever it was. I think it was Monday night. So we get to we get to the we get down to the final four for Saturday. So we got the semifinals, and we're going to supposedly play the semifinals in the morning, play, start the eighteen hole final in the afternoon, and, and then spill over to Sunday. Well, they gathered the girls together. I think it was on Friday night, and they said, "What do you guys want to do?" And all four of them wanted to get the whole thing done on Saturday, because uh, one, a couple one was going to the Canadian Women's Amateur, which started like two days later. Another one was in the I guess they call it the is it the Wyndham Cup now? Yeah, Wyndham Cup. I think a couple Cannon Cup, yeah. Cannon Cup, right. So they want to get they want to get out of this right. as quickly as they can. So they play the semi they, you know, fortunately the fog was not bad on, on Saturday. Uh so they get the semifinals done and we start the final and they they, they talk to the girls again. Are you guys sure you want to play? They both agreed to play thirty six holes on Saturday afternoon or whatever they whatever time they started the final, I think it was around twelve o'clock. So Alexa Pano and Yalimi Noah are in the final, and they combined that day, I think, to play 100 holes of golf total. Uh, it's, it's the longest day of golf that I have known, I think I've looked it up, that's ever happened in USJ history where they played the semis and a 36-hole final on the, on the last day. They finished. And oh by the time Yalimi Noah no finished, the fog came back in. So basically within like a half an hour of that match finishing, and I think she may have won four and three, something like that. We, if, if that match had gone like the extra holes, we'd have been, we would have been playing on Sunday morning. And guess what? I don't think we've been teed up at Cyprus. And the next morning, of course, we got to go play Cyprus and it was everything. It, it uh, cracked up to me. Oh it was pretty, God. pretty, pretty incredible. And I did par 16, knocked the hybrid on the green. So that's probably the greatest, uh, course i've got a chance to play now that we didn't have the championship there but it was basically the area sure. we are going to have a, a walker cup there in a few years and um, and then i i got a chance to play shinnecock twice uh, once for media day for the open and then once the day after the women's open in 13 at sabonic which is right down the street so yes it does help uh, to have some usj connections when we go to these championships i do get a do get to play my fair share of golf and i'm very grateful for it every time i get that opportunity because uh these places are special i mean uh they're incredible golf courses uh they're fun to play they're memorable and uh, certainly i am grateful for every opportunity i've gotten to, a chance to do that now we don't always get a chance to play the course sometimes it's they're closed for maintenance and this and that but yeah. uh i got one year i played setting down creek after the women's amateur in 05 i played it without any flags flags in the holes I had to, I had to, I had to play it from memory from the, uh, basically from the full locations that we had for the final because they didn't obviously change them. I, I remember uh, at Oakmont they were punching the practice green at during the award ceremony, basically. Oh yeah, oh yeah. A lot of times that you know when the when the championships end on a, on a Sunday, it's sometimes difficult to play the course on Monday unless there's an outing, right? Because the 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 superintendent just basically wants to use that data, you know get the course back into shape again for the members. Yeah. I had that at the senior am this year where I wanted to play on that Thursday after the morning final. And, you know, they just said, you know, we're closing the course. We got to, we got to, you know, we got all these members who want to play on the next day. And uh, so my consolation prize, I got to play Oakland Hills on Friday. Oh, you poor baby. So, you poor baby. Poor baby. Yeah. And it's fantastic. They just <laughs> redid Gil Hansen instead of redo of it. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It's a 
I had played it five years earlier after the amateur, and it's ten times better now than it was even then. Unreal. I know so, yet I know you have a trivia question for me. I'm gonna let you have the last word on this episode, but I wanna get a quick quick fire thoughts on a couple things. Um Okay. So okay. the most um most USGA championships by a man is uh, tied at nine. That's Tiger and Bobby right. Jones. Correct. <clears throat> does does Tiger get to ten either at a US Open or at a US senior open? I think he's got a shot at the senior open. I don't think he's got a shot at the U.S. Open. Not with, not with his physical condition the way it is. We just don't know how many more U.S. Opens he'll even play in. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But I think he's got a shot at the senior open if his body can hold up. Um, and what, and he, I know he wants to do it because he'd be the first player to ever win four different USG championships. That's never been done. Not even Jack Arney can, can claim that because Jack and Army never won the junior. Jack played in five juniors and never won it. Uh, semifinals was his best finish, I think, in 50, sometime in the late 50s, I think it was, 57, 58, I think it was. So um, here's one for you. Last person to go back-to-back at a USAM was obviously Tiger. He won three of them in a row. Does anyone right. Does anyone win back-to-back USAMs ever again? Yeah, I think that could be done, especially the, it depends on how old the player is when they do it. If somebody's like a senior in college, I don't think it's the chances are – good but i think it's like a like let's say an 18 or 19 year old kid did it i think there's a shot yeah byung hung yan made uh made a pretty good run when he won in 09 at southern hills the next year i think he was a, he was a semifinalist at chambers bay so he, he made a pretty good run at it uh but yeah i think it could be done okay in the right circumstances it could be done i mean obviously it's been done at the women's am recently with danielle kang doing it yeah best um so, best man or woman uh to go to for a quote at a u.s open best experience you've ever had getting a quote Ooh, that's pretty that's an interesting question wow uh, i i brought a blank on this one because there's, there's a lot of good ones uh oh women's side definitely tiffany joe okay okay how can, how can i not think of tiffany joe's she's probably the funniest person i've ever met and jane park's a close second okay tiffany joe tiffany joe on a men's side i i I'm trying to I'm just kind of, kind of there's, just, there's just not there's, many. There's, well, there's guys out there. Just, just off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of so, you know, Jordan Speed was really good, very thoughtful. Um, you know, no, Hagestad could be pretty good at times. Uh, Sean Knapp's always good, yeah. very thoughtful, very good. Nathan's pretty vanilla. He's a great player, great person, but pretty vanilla with his quotes. Don't tell him I said that. Like, no, no, he won't, he won't listen now, to this. Now, Don't worry. Now he's, now he's going to hear this. He's going to come back. Chef, he just ripped me. <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, he's it's, a great hey, it's no better no. than bringing up Jason Gore's 84. I mean, really, after that, yeah, no one's going right. mean, to. That's, that's, well, Jason's always good for a quote, too, back in the day. Too, that's very that. true. Now, you're yeah. known you're known for your taglines and your stories. You put a lot of creativity to it, and you know, when, when Jensen Castle won the U.S. Women's Amateur, I thought I was pretty sharp when I mentioned, you know, uh, Jensen is the queen of the castle. I was pretty proud of that oh. one. I was pretty proud of that one. Uh, I, even, I even offered it, but it didn't make the final cut. Um, it did make the final cut. What, no. what, what are some of your – I know you must have one or two of oh, your favorites. Oh, I got a few. See, I know. My, 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 I, think, I think my best one was Magna Carta with Virginia Elena Carta when she – I don't know what round it was oh my God. at the women's amateur in 2000 and 
16 at Rolling Green. Yeah. So, 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 so you're targeting your, your, uh, you're targeting your, your, uh, story titles for all those people that got A's. Well, these are six... headlines. Right. We've I mean... kind of got, we've kind of gotten away from it a little bit on the, uh, on the, on the, on the hero. We call these the hero images on the, on the homepage because right. with mobile, with the mobile stuff, you've got to be very careful because people, a lot of people go in for mobile. And right. if you, if you put something in there that it's catchy, but they don't know, really know what it really is it can confuse people. <laughs> we don't want to confuse uh, people. Okay, we don't want to confuse anyone. But yeah, Magna Carta was one that came up. I think I've, I've come up with some cute ones with Bronte Law back when she was playing. Uh, but the Magna Carta one kind of sticks out. There's probably, I know there's others out there. Yeah, for all- I know, uh, I'll give Joey Flint's our, our staff a great one. He, these two girls from, from Furman won the women's uh, four ball. And he came up with Purple Rain, which I thought was really good. That's uh, permanent purple, yeah. you know, paladins, you know, that was pretty good. Yeah, I like the Magna Carta one too. And I sure, and everyone that got A's in social studies in sixth grade really appreciates that one as well. So that's, uh, yeah, that's definitely good. I probably, had, probably sent a few people to Google, but <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. All right, I'm going to give you the final word. You you are a absolute vault of knowledge, and you have a trivia question for me that I'm sure okay. I will not get, but it's going to show off your brilliance. And really, that's what this episode's all about, Shefty. So fire fire away. Okay, well, we all know Tiger Woods had an incredible record in USGA Amateur competitions. I don't. I he won he won three juniors, three amateurs, in six consecutive years, but he did lose three times. Can you name the three players that defeated Tiger Woods at USGA amateur competitions? No. Um. <laughs> one, one of them, one of them made it on the tour. We'll put it that way. The other two are a little, uh, a little obscure. All right. So one of them's a well-known player. He was a Walker cup guy made it on tour. Okay. So obviously these are, uh, am I, am I correct in assuming that these are the three U.S. juniors before he won, or are we talking? No. Okay, so we're, no. we're so we're one talking. of them's a junior, one junior, two amateurs, and one of the amateurs he played in, he didn't make the cut, so we're not going to count that. No. But, so, so when he made match play, two of the amateurs he lost. Uh, I even give you the years: ninety-two and ninety-three. Well, and then the, and then the the year the junior was nineteen ninety, which was his first junior at any one. Yeah, 15, 16, I'm gonna 17. let you give the answer because uh, I I have no clue. It's a pretty good question. Uh, one of them is Tim Heron. That was at Muirfield, 1992. Lumpy, in fact, really? Uh, in fact, my former editor at Golf Journal, back in the previous iteration of Golf Journal, said he, Tim Heron came up to him at Muirfield Village and said, "Brett, you want to come out and watch me kick some ass today?" Oh my God! <laughs> so he was pretty cocky, and he ended up taking out Tiger. The other guy to beat him at the amateur is a guy that is a is a, is an Englishman named Paul Page. I don't know where Paul is these days. Uh, I just know that Paul defeated him at Champions in 1993, and then in 1990 he got to the semis of the U.S. Junior and lost to Dennis Hillman, who then lost in the final to Matthew Todd. That was at uh, Lake Merced. In fact, Jason Gore played that Good U.S. God. Junior in Lake Merced. Seriously, when do you turn your brain off at all to rest it, or does it just come pretty much going at all times? Uh, but golf stuff is pretty much always going, you know, oh my but that's one that, you know, I've, I actually have had, I, I've, I've researched it. And then I think we ran something when Tiger won his, I think it was his third U S amateur. I think my boss, when he wrote the amateur story, wrote a small sidebar about the three guys that, uh, 
that he that beat him. I think Fox a few years ago did a did a little roundtable with the guys that he beat. Yeah, Steve his, Scott and Buddy and uh, Trip Keeney. Yeah, I remember. Right, that. and then the three junior guys uh, were uh, Mark Wilson, oh, a guy named Schwetsky. I think it was his first one. That was at Bay Hill, and then uh, Ryan Armour he beat at uh, at Waverly in Portland. Two down with two to play in the 1805 final, and he wins the next three holes and wins in 19 to beat yeah. Uh, yeah. to win his third junior. And of course, he came back in all of his amateur. I wins. know. I, mean, that, I was just going to say Scott that. had him beat. Uh, yeah, Trip Keeney. In fact, Trip says all the time that you know if he would have won that match, he probably would have turned pro. Oh, I, of course, of course. And so he said it may have been the best thing that ever happened to him. In fact, because it didn't force him to turn pro, and obviously he's had a very successful career off the golf course. Yeah. With his with his uh, financial stuff, so might might yeah. might see him uh, as a captain of a Walker Cup team in the near future. I wouldn't doubt it, and I would hope we'd see him in a, at a senior amateur too. I mean, he, he, he's doubted his kids older. You know, he's I think he's a college quarterback. I think now, I think. When are when are we going to get a uh, when are we going to get a Walker Cup uh, captain's announcement? By the way, oh well, the Walker Cup's not till when it was not till. Uh, well, it's it's in twenty three. It's in twenty three, but aren't we due to find out who the U.S. captain's going to be? And my, my my guess would probably be around the annual meeting. Maybe. Okay. Are you going to you know, Are you, uh, you going to call me and tell me who it is for for the news breaks? Are you going <laughs> to? Well, you want that scoop? I I, I, I don't even know who it is until like come two on. minutes before the next announcement. Shefty, it's just you and me. No one's paying attention. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think that it's going it's to be an interesting group. We got a lot of guys that could be captains of the Walker Cup in the next few years. Obviously, Trips one of them. You know, maybe a Mike McCoy. You certainly know that Nathan's going to be a captain. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a slam dunk in my opinion. I would think at some point maybe Stewart is. Uh, you got a nice group of mid-am guys that are that are out there. Uh, the women's one's going to be a little more interesting because there hasn't been a lot of women's mid mid-amateur players or career amateurs that have uh, played, you know, Curtis Cup recently. So I don't know where they're going to go. Fifteen years from now, but well, we'll I, I know one that's going to be. I think I got a good idea about one that could potentially be a captain. That's Amelia Migliaccio. Oh sure, yeah, I would think. I could, she, and I then the that. way before her will be, will be Megan. Megan uh, Stasi. Oh yeah, yep, Stasi. Yeah, hundred percent. But you're starting. You don't have a lot of. I mean, between when Megan played in '08 to now, I don't know if there's been a mid amateur on the team. No. You know, I you know, it's just there's. There's there's not quite the depth there, but you'd love to see a mid. I'd love to see a mid amateur make the Curtis Cup team. I really would. These are these are all issues that we will address next time. Um, thank you for, you know, I I thought I understood the vastness of your knowledge sitting in the media center with you, but now that I had your undivided attention, it's a, uh, it's full blown. It's impressive, and uh, I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range. And I will see you uh, in 2022 out at a USGA Championship. And uh, again, I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range. Happy holidays. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you, Ben, because I know how much you really put into Amateur Golf. And we really appreciate that. I know we appreciate that at the USGA. And there you have it. Special thanks to David Schefter for joining me on this episode here at the back of the range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time here at the back of the range.